Welcome. This is the sixth uh, episode of the Anatomy Cupboard. Uh, this is the sad case of the farmer from Luz. Um, <clears throat> if you like these podcasts, uh, not just on the Anatomy Cupboard or the history of anatomy, but also the anatomy itself, we're just about to complete the upper limb and move to the lower limb, we'd appreciate it if you can uh, contribute by visiting patron.podbean.com slash anatopod I've put it on the site and whatever you can contribute Um, this uh, podcast will be up um, uh, for a couple of weeks or so before it um, is placed in the patrons only uh, section so it won't be available to non-patrons to copy or download um after that time, so we'd really appreciate uh, patronage. I wanted to get on uh, with this case because uh, it's a rather sad case of uh, Stephen Pollard, the farmer from Lewes, versus Sir Astley Cooper's nephew. There's a recent um, delightful film which is called The Favourite, is set in early 18th century England and which tracks the machinations and private dalliances and alliances between Queen Anne and her ladies-in-waiting. Much of the aristocracy and parliament functioned, I suspect, as depicted in this film, which is beautifully written for a first-time screenplay by uh, Deborah Davis, who had only just completed a night course in screenplay writing was nominated for an Academy Award uh, for Best Original Screenplay. My point is, or one of my points is here, that connections, like pretty well everything, uh, got things done in the chambers of power back then, be they in Parliament or in the Royal Court. One can imagine the prominent surgeons of the day, like William Hunter or his brother John, the Bell brothers, John and his younger brother, Sir Charles Bell, Joshua Brooks, the owner of a major anatomy museum in London at the time, or the naturalists uh, before then, Sir Hans Sloan or Sir Joseph Banks and the Ariel. They all sort of moved in particular influential circles, pretty much oblivious to the great masses. The influential politician Horace Walpole and the father of utilitarianism, that somewhat simplified credo of the greatest good for the greatest number, that father, Jeremy Bentham, both crafted legislation that affected the plebs without ever mixing in their circles. Society wasn't like some Venn diagram with the hoi polloi rubbing shoulders with the great unwashed. The subsets never overlapped. Let's face it, the aristocracy framed the laws for a public they could never identify with. And we don't think how disconnected from reality they sometimes were. It affected their mindset and hence their expectations and sense of entitlement. You know, apropos that point, when Lord Raglan, who so disastrously led the Crimean campaign at Sebastopol, was in his 60s, he'd never ridden, for example, on a public bus. And after a short trip, he complained that the ignorant bus driver didn't listen to him because he didn't understand that there was such a thing as a bus route. 
and he expected the bus to go wherever he, that's his Lord Raglan, wanted. Another example is when Winston Churchill, as a young man, was briefly imprisoned in South Africa during the Boer War. He made a big deal of that when he went back to um, get elected as an MP back in England. But when he was inside prison in South Africa, Churchill had a batman come in every day to give him a shave and to lay out his clothes. It's not exactly like they were really struggling, and yet it was presented as such. The Scottish physician David Livingstone, of Livingstone, I presume, fame, when he went through the jungle, had his slaves carry three mahogany dining tables with them. It's all there in the inventory if you want to see it on the internet. And then some people wonder how or why he ever got lost. I'm just trying to make a point here, but I, I do have a couple of little caveats that make this sort of social separation between the classes even more stark. I think the first was the pervasive presence of serious, contagious and infectious illness. In the general public, one-fifth of children never got beyond two years of age. And that actually wasn't a class thing. It was a, a measure of severe infectious disease that we don't even consider today, but against which the 18th century populace were powerless. Measles, German measles, smallpox, erysipelas, scarlet fever, rheumatic fever and the like. Every family had an intimate brush with infant loss, indescribable and yet expected. But it's true that the impact of this loss was felt greatest amongst the lower classes. The ability of rich people to abandon the city for the country climate certainly improved their longevity once they got tuberculosis and the effects of consumption, as was its Victorian name, or in some circles, the White Plague, that terrible wasting called phthisis, the extensive muscle loss, the overwhelming lassitude and that frailness, were somewhat assuaged by fresher, less polluted air. It was in the absence of any specific and effective anti-tuberculous medication that the sanatoriums then sprang up. These were what became known as the resting cures, like the one in the Alpine retreat of Davos, Switzerland, that formed the backdrop for Thomas Mann's wonderful novel, The Magic Mountain. That was a vehicle for him to rail on about the sickness of an individual as a metaphor for the sickness of the state. Anyway, as usual, I'm, I'm wandering a little bit. But with anatomy and its story, I, I think that's easy to do. The power and the majesty of the impending Industrial Revolution didn't, of course, improve the quality of life of many average Joes and Jills, but it forced many from the lower classes to move in the opposite direction, from areas of bucolic harshness in the country and the struggles of the farm to the rush of even harsher cities. One only needs to think of the squalor of overcrowded Dickensian existence, which became the breeding ground for that scourge of Victorian England tuberculosis. Of course, that story is another podcast. I'm certainly going to do that because anatomy and its conduct converted into a kind of very Victorian enterprise that didn't occur in a social vacuum. That's certainly a good podcast to do. So that's the first caveat about the risk, the expectation even, of infant mortality. 
But the second caveat in 18th century London, which is where our story takes us, is that caveat that beyond that grim reality of childhood illness and waste was the terrible state of the Georgian and then subsequently the Victorian hospitals or infirmaries. In the Hunter's time, as these hospitals were expanding and the private sector was actually collapsing a little bit, if you as a patient were actually sick enough to need hospitalisation, it was often a death sentence. The surgeons weren't exactly doing that much surgery. Some cautery or burning of wounds, some lancing of abscesses, a bit of tooth extraction, that kind of thing. And if they amputated legs, the chances of shock from blood loss were extremely high or death later from overwhelming sepsis. Abdominal surgery, of course, without an anaesthetic, often proved too much for the average patient, no matter how young or fit. By the time the surgeons were through, the patient was often dead uh, and, by the way, useful enough fodder for a bit of post-mortem dissection if there were no relatives within distance or time to object. One could imagine that it wasn't uncommon for a physician to actually hasten his patient's demise if there was some outside chance that he, <coughs> that is the doctor, could get an opportunity to dissect the body afterwards. The whole thing was so nasty and despicable that in a reflective memoir, the father of British obstetrics, Sir James Simpson, in a review of his own cases in a public infirmary published after his death in 1870, candidly, albeit with a little uh, certain theatricality, remarked that, quote, the man laid on an operating theatre in one of our surgical hospitals is exposed to more chances of death than the English soldier on the field of Waterloo, unquote. It was probably pretty accurate. surgeons and anatomists towards the general public. At a parliamentary select committee in 1834 deciding about how to supply bodies to the anatomists for legal dissection rather than all of the body snatching and grave robbing that was going on and with which the surgeons were complicit in any rate, one of John Hunter's students, Astley, later Sir Astley Cooper, told the committee, and I quote here, quote, there is no person, let his situation in life be what it may, whom, if I was disposed to dissect, I could not obtain. The law only enhances the price. It does not prevent exhumation, unquote. I mean, Cooper's arrogant comment is not quite let them eat cake, but it's close enough. And I think you get the picture on how expendable the average patient was and how that patient was viewed by the average surgeon. Now, Sir Astley features in this story I'm about to tell on quite how the surgeons regarded their poor patients. Before the case of Stephen Pollard, which is the one I wish to recount as an exemplar of this 
hideous disregard for human life, I suppose that I can introduce the figure of Dr Thomas Walkley. That's the man who set up a now famous medical journal, The Lancet, which he founded in 1823. And this was a bulwark against hospital corruption and his personal pet peeve, nepotism in hospital appointments. Walkley himself, snubbed by the surgical establishment, didn't just take his bat and ball and go home. He sets up a magazine that exposes the corrupt systems that denied him entry as a consultant in the first place. Now, it isn't just a revenge vehicle. It takes on the state of water in London, for example, and her Thames River, which was once called the Great Stink. He takes on the problems of alcohol, the terror of widespread malnutrition, the consensus around public hygiene, the scourge of public floggings, and just about anything that took his fancy. And he becomes such a thorn in the establishment's side that soon enough he's not even allowed <clears throat> into many of the new hospitals that have just opened up in London. Excommunicated, he runs one of the most powerful journals in the country, whilst at the same time he's a pariah. For a man whose main 1841 editorial on the College of Surgeons begins, quote, the Council of the College of Surgeons remains an irresponsible, unreformed monstrosity in the midst of English institutions. And you can imagine the sort of forces that would have been out to get him. And in the editorial, he goes on to declare about the college that it is, quote, an antediluvian relic of all that is most despotic and revolting, iniquitous and insulting on the face of the earth. That comes from The Lancet, 1841. If you want the precise reference, it's volume 42, 2, page 246. Fairly strong stuff even for those times. Reminds me of the feud, really, between the Dutch anatomists Frederick Reich in Amsterdam and the Leiden University rector, Gewehr Bidlou. Reich calling Bidlou, quote, a notorious whoremonger and an infamous pimp. All Bidlou could come up with in retort was to call Reich a miserimus anatoricum, the miserable anatomist. But that was an era when deeply wounding profanities were pretty par for the course in almost any profession. If you look at the American elections around the same time in the early 1800s, it was not beyond the candidates for President of the United States to call one another, quote, a carbuncled old drunkard or a syphilitic gorilla. Nice one. John Adams was actually speaking about his rival Thomas Jefferson, at the time an atheist, an anarchist, a demagogue, a coward and a mountebank. And those who dared follow him, according to Adams, were cutthroats who walk in rags and sleep amidst filth and vermin. I have to thank the author Paul Boller for that quote from his um, presidential campaigns. It's the kind of rhetoric that was used uh, in general against colleagues and in professional atmospheres. Not a little idea of the landscape. And it was a landscape into which the hapless patient Pollard entered, unbeknownst to him. Pollard became really the personification of the dreadful fate that awaited some of the patients who needed surgery once they were admitted to a public London hospital. Now Stephen Pollard had come down to London for treatment of a bladder stone and 
was in the specialised hands of one of its consultant surgeons, Mr Bransby Cooper. That a case should go so wrong was in part a measure of the arrogance of Cooper, who was nephew of Guy's Hospital's greatest surgeon, as we've already met, Sir Astley. And it proved a double indignity with Pollard's case publicly performed by Bransby as an instruction piece, a bit like a piece of theatre in front of a group of Cooper's peers, and it became a cause célèbre for Walkley and his Lancet magazine. Pollard had come in for a simple operation, which in the days when there was no anaesthetics should have been done or taken in deft hands, perhaps about one minute or so, but which took Cooper over an hour to perform. The exhausted Pollard had died the next day, and in an editorial, Walkley drew attention to the obvious negligence of the case, and sued by Cooper, acted as his own defence counsel in a notorious libel case, which was front-page news. I actually picked up the hard-copy printouts from a very special library dedicated to archival newspapers in London, and the fine print typeface in The Times runs for a full seven pages, starting on Saturday, December the 13th, 1828. It makes for pretty riveting reading. Pollard, a farmer, was 53 years of age with six children and he'd come down from Lewes in Sussex for what he thought was the simple operation of cutting stone, confident that his surgery was about to be done by the nevy, that's the nephew to you and me, of Sir Astley. The history of these stones themselves is interesting since they were commonplace in Georgian England but are relatively infrequent today. The surgeons had developed a wide and inventive variety of tools and instruments to extract them without anaesthesia and with astonishing speed. The patient trapped and strapped up, bound to the operating table with his legs up for a perineal cut. You can imagine it. In those days, the combination of speed and success would have been most prized, and a surgeon based his reputation on both. Such tales were legendary. Around that time, there were stories of the surgeon Robert Liston, who was particularly known for his surgical speed and who was reputed to have taken off some poor patient's leg in 28 seconds, <coughs> along with a few fingers of his surgical assistants in the process. Both patient and assistant died a few days later from overwhelming infection. And someone in the crowd witnessing this also died, probably from a heart attack. So that's actually, uh, by the way, been mentioned or been called the deadliest operation in history. Nice one. Anyway, let's get back to Pollard's case. In Pollard's case, however, Cooper spent an hour repeatedly digging around from below in the area between Pollard's bladder and his rectum, the area called the perineum, unable to locate the stone. Part of Cooper's problem also stemmed from his performance, which was in front of a sizable audience, perhaps upwards of 200 people, each member witnessing him becoming increasingly frustrated with the progress of the surgery. And it's recorded that at one point Cooper, in exasperation, had proclaimed that the depth of Pollard's perineum, that space from the skin around the anus and the scrotum to the bladder, was abnormally large, extremely deep, and he then spent a considerable time comparing the size of his own hand with that of others in the audience, whilst poor old Pollard lay strapped up, screaming and exhausted in a gutted pool of his own blood. 
At long last, Cooper retrieved the stone, holding it aloft in what some described later as triumph, and sent Pollard back to his bed in agony, covered in blood. Pollard died the next day, presumably from blood loss, shock and exhaustion. Post-mortem performed later by Dr. Thomas Hodgkin, of Hodgkin's fame, uh, revealed a normal-shaped perineum with an average thickness and extensive bruising in the region of the bladder base, along with a severe injury to the rectum. I'm sorry to be so graphic, but the post-mortem findings are important. And now that horror alone might not normally have triggered any sort of action at all. Patients died every day from operations that were poorly performed or where simply in the absence of supportive facilities, larger surgeries would have proven too much for them to withstand. The business of retrieving urinary stones, or calculi as they're called, had an age-old tradition with a series of small scoops and graspers, tine-like brushes and crushes and baskets all designed to ensnare them in their hidden locations. The instrument which is inserted into the bladder to locate the position of the stone is actually called a sound because of the light noise that it makes when it taps against the hard calculus. There were many surgeons in London with a solid enough reputation for adeptly removing or cutting the stone. Walkley's open report in The Lancet on March the 29th, 1828, on how this operation had been botched, claimed negligent incompetence on behalf of Bransby, and with five of Sir Astley Cooper's relatives working in senior positions at the hospital, there was a second claim that this negligence was a by-product of Astley's nepotism. Bransby's libel suit against Walkley was then heard at the Queen's bench before Lord Tenterton, with Walkley in arrogant fashion conducting his own defence, although he received some private assistance and tuition about how to comport himself from the Lord Chancellor, Henry Brougham. Walkley, with the assistance of Brougham and a Mr Fitzroy Kelly, was pitted against one of the foremost barristers in Sir James Scarlet, afterwards Lord Abingdon, who was assisted by Mr F Pollock, who was later Chief Baron Pollock. Uh, There's a beautiful rendition of this by Esquire Sprigg in The Life and Times of Thomas Walkley. It's published by Robert E. Krieger. It was published in 1899, but there's some modern editions of it. After two hours of deliberation, although the jury ruled in Cooper's favour, they offered him, that is Cooper, only £100 damages, a payment which was defrayed by Walkley through public subscription. It was just enough to cover his legal expenses, that is, Walkley's legal expenses, and still leave a very small sum of money for Pollard's widow. During the case, Walkley used a scale model 
of a child along with a human pelvis and a range of instruments explaining the nature of Cooper's incision. At a meeting at the Freemasons Tavern a week after the verdict, there was almost unanimous support in paying Walkley's expenses as subscriptions. So there were £295, 10 shillings for Mr Cooper's costs, the £100 for damages, £12, 7 shillings and 9 pence for the sheriff's poundage costs. That's a, a levied fee, usually amounting to about 5% of the judgment. And as the total costs were, obta- were attained through this public subscription, the subscriptions book was closed, leaving two to three very small subscriptions which the donors did not want returned and which were forwarded on to Pollard's widow. For her husband's death, Mrs Pollard would probably have received a few shillings. Afterwards, Walkley, for his trouble, was expelled from the learned societies and banned from the metropolitan hospitals. He was later elected the MP for Finsbury until his retirement in 1852, and he championed universal suffrage for women, the abolition of slavery. Walkley's uh, Lancet became the social instrument for venting concerns about almost everything, as I've said. Its pages were used for substantial reforms of the health system, railing against a range of ills, including the poor state of medical education, the rise of nepotism within the infirmaries and their boards, the need for city coroners to be practising physicians, the advocacy of a registry of all medical doctors, which later became the General Medical Council, and even as a platform for recommendations on the quality of food and drink within the city. Old Walkley had been rejected as a surgeon by the establishment, but it's fair to say that his journal was a useful and legitimate platform for constructive change in the health sector, even if it was also an instrument for revenge. But the impact on the Pollard family and on others to come soon after him was minimal. Although the issue of medical malpractice appeared commonly in the editorials of the journal, there were many other complaints which diluted any substantial what we might call Pollard effect. The issue of nepotism in hospital appointments was addressed in a special parliamentary select committee in 1834, and although things were improved, they were not even to this day eradicated. It followed the 1828 uh, Parliamentary Select Committee, which was designed to legalise the movement of bodies for dissection to the infirmaries and universities, and to put a dent in all that grave robbing and body snatching that was going on. That's certainly another podcast that I'm going to do. The assumption of all of these parliamentary inquiries and select committees is that they should improve the quality of patient care. So the argument goes that the easier it is, for example, for a surgeon in training to get access to a dead body to dissect, at least at that time, the greater the chance that patient care would improve. Put simply, it was put there to save lives. And with that improvement, it was hoped that the carnage of the London infirmaries would disappear. So too, it might be imagined that the artist also accessing the common ground of the corpse to dissect might improve the quality and the naturalism of their art through their extended experience with dissection. Both of these assumptions seem pretty intuitive. 
But of course, there's no reason to expect that one thing could ever be tied to the other, both art and the art of surgery, if you like. In the case of surgery, its safety and its efficacy to cure patients without harm are a consequence, really, of the meaning of surgery itself. Chirurgia, heros or cheri, Greek hand, and ergon, ergasia, Greek work, handiwork. But unsurprisingly, after the enactment in 1832 of the Anatomy Act, which distributed bodies to the hospitals so that they could be dissected, the bodies of those dying in the workhouses, the almshouses and the infirmaries, which weren't claimed within 48 hours of their death. After that, there was little effect on the tragic surgical death rates in the hospitals. We needn't be that surprised to hear that since any improvements in that handiwork without the real breakthroughs, anaesthetics and antiseptics, all of that would simply not be enough. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.